Greetings, Earth Dweller. You have dialed in to the weird side of podcasting and landed on Renegade Files, your underground source for paranormal events, unsolved mysteries, and alternative cultural analysis. In other words, the fun stuff. I'm your fearless guide, Lex Gordon, broadcasting this unauthorized transmission from the Jungle Villa Outpost, deep in the uncharted tropics. This is Renegade Files episode 59, Lizard People, our reptilian bloodline overlords. Reptilians, lizard people, or draconian subterranean overlords. Whatever you call them, you have to admit, they pack a provocative punch. Whether you think of them as your favorite junk conspiracy or the most dangerous reality on Earth, you can be sure that we're going to go deep on this one. On this episode of Renegade Files, we'll explore the legends, ideas, and theories of these cold-blooded hominids from ancient First Peoples' teachings of serpent demons through some religious symbolism territory and into the dizzying depths of David Icke's theory and across all manner of reports featuring everything from slea stacks of old to the reptilian bloodlines of the power elite. So put on your snake-proof boots, load up in the paranormal investigation vehicle, and come with me to parts unknown as we explore the slimy world of the dreaded lizard people, our reptilian bloodline overlords. Lizard people, lizard people, lizard people. Part 1. Origins of the Lizard People As we begin this episode, it's important to address a subject that I came across while researching the topics we will go over today. While digging through the search engines, I learned that apparently some guy set off a bomb somewhere, I think in the south, and in the process that followed, it was reported in the mainstream press that this person professed a belief in this or that lizard people conspiracy theory. And there have been other crimes linked to people who supposedly believed in this idea of a lizard people conspiracy theory. A violent act caused by someone who believes in a conspiracy theory is not a conspiracy theory problem. It is a mental health problem. It's a criminal behavior problem. Setting off a bomb is the crime. Believing an alternative viewpoint is not. Blaming one person's violent act on the free-thinking ideas of others is an insult to both those living with mental illness and those who choose to seek their own information. Always be wary of the motivations in those who categorize the thoughts and ideas of others as dangerous. This is a simplistic attempt to use the fear of that danger to persuade others to think like they do. It's a perennial political trick because it works. But it's also easy to spot when you've cultivated the capacity for independent thought, and that ability is what those who wish to control and manipulate us fear the most. There's a long history of reptilian influence on mankind. This episode goes deep into the ideas and possibilities of that influence, so take the ride for fun. And as always, treat yourself and others with peace and respect. Alright, let's rock. 
The tale of the serpent in the biblical story of the fall of Adam and Eve is not the oldest story of a snake meddling in the affairs of early mankind, but it is the one that most people in the West will often think of as one of the oldest. I am no biblical scholar, so you can read that story in Genesis for the official version, and you may have, but the basics of that tale are that God made Adam and Eve and a garden for them to live in on earth. And in the middle of that garden was the tree of knowledge. And God told them they could eat any fruit except the ones on the tree of knowledge. Then a snake talked Eve into trying that fruit, and she did. Then she gave some to Adam, and he ate it. And this gave them the knowledge of themselves as divided from the rest of creation. And with that came all of the concepts of division. So they put on clothes and hid from God and everything kind of went to crap for them after that. And by extension, for the rest of us since. When God asked Adam what was going on, Adam immediately threw Eve under the bus and she in turn threw the snake under the bus And so God cursed the snake to crawl and to be stepped on by humans forever. He cursed Eve to have a painful time in childbirth and have to obey her husband forever. And he cursed Adam to have to deal with Eve and to work and grow food amongst all the thorns and briars that God was going to put in his way from then on. And that is the general story. So the snake was something else before God cast it down to be a snake. It could stand up, it could walk, it could talk, it could reason. And in the beginning of the Genesis story, the serpent is described as the smartest and most clever of all the animals in the garden. Some could interpret that as including Adam and Eve and some not, but the snake was right at the top of intelligent creatures. In the earliest versions of the Bible, the snake was not thought to be Satan because the concept of Satan came much later, and when it did, the story of the fall of Adam and Eve was retconned, with Satan cast in the role of the snake by poets and scholars, but the personification of Satan is never explicitly described anywhere in the Bible, Old Testament or New. It's kind of a shock to some people who may not know that, but it's true. Now, this gets into fallen angel territory. But before we start unraveling that, we need to have at least some short historical background on the factors at play that caused the reptilian humanoid from the Garden of Eden to come to be associated with the modern ideas of Satan. And as I said, I am no biblical scholar, so let's turn to someone who is. Shauna Dolansky is adjunct research professor and instructor in the program in religion at the College of Humanities of Carleton University in Ottawa, Ontario, Canada. The following is a blend of quotes and paraphrasing from her article entitled, How the Serpent in the Garden Became Satan, from the Biblical Archaeology Society, September 30th, 2023, presented here under fair use. So she tells us that while the word Satan does appear in the Old Testament, that the concept of Satan as an individual was unknown or as yet not invented, and that back then the term Satan 
was just the old Hebrew word for adversary or accuser. Professor Delansky points to the fact that the word Satan was nearly always preceded by the word the in those older texts. So, the Satan, as in the accuser. She also tells us that the accuser was a legal position within certain tribunals and proceedings, and we're not going to go into all of that here. From the best that I could gather through reading the article and a few other sources, the accuser in the Old Testament is sort of like the prosecutor today, right? So, it was an official title for someone in an official proceeding. According to her article, the worldview of people reading that story of the fall of Adam and Eve profoundly changed in the centuries since the story was first written. After the canon of the Hebrew Bible closed, beliefs in angels, demons, and a final apocalyptic battle arose. And this arose in a divided and turbulent community. In light of this, the impending end, many turned to a renewed understanding of the beginning, and the Garden of Eden was reread and rewritten to reflect the changing ideas of a changing world. Two separate things happened and then merged. Satan became the proper name for the devil, a supernatural power now seen to oppose God as the leader of demons and the forces of evil, and the serpent in the Garden of Eden came to be identified with that character. While we begin to see the first idea occurring in text two centuries before the New Testament, the second idea, that is, the serpent as Satan, won't happen until later. The serpent in the garden is not identified with Satan anywhere in the Hebrew Bible or in the New Testament. The concept of the devil began to appear in the second and first centuries BC. In the first book of Enoch, the angel who led Eve astray and showed the weapons of death to the children of men was called Gadriel, G-A-D-R-E-E-L, not Satan. Around the same time, the wisdom of Solomon taught that through the devil's envy, death entered the world, and those who are on his side suffer it. Though this may very well be the earliest reference to the serpent in the Garden of Eden as the devil, in neither text nor in any document we have until after the New Testament is Satan ever clearly understood as the serpent in the Garden of Eden. And I'm still paraphrasing from her article. So, in the New Testament, Satan and his demons have the power to enter and possess people. This is what is said to have happened to Judas. But when Paul retells the story of Adam and Eve, he places the blame on the humans and not on the fallen angels, nor on the serpent as Satan. Still, the conflation begged to be made, and it will seem natural for later Christian authors to assume Satan's association with Eden's talking snake. Most famously, in the 17th century, John Milton elaborates Satan's roles in the garden, poetically, in great detail, in his work, Paradise Lost. But this connection is not forged anywhere in the Bible. So, most of what we know as Satan is a snake in the Garden of Eden comes from John Milton's 17th century Paradise Lost. So that's it from Professor Delansky's article, which we understand is just one person's interpretation. For a colorful array of other interpretations, see the comment section below that article. But anyway, how cool is that, right? 
The snake in the Garden of Eden is never thought to be Satan anywhere in the Bible. That connection was just made hundreds of years even after the New Testament was written. But what we do learn in the Bible is that Satan and his team of fallen angels have the power to enter and possess people. And that whatever character that was in the Garden of Eden that tempted Eve, it was originally a reptilian humanoid creature. In Revelations, we read, The war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil, or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to earth, and his angels with him. Notice that it doesn't say Satan, the great dragon, and his horde of demons were sent to hell, but rather they were cast to earth. So while the Bible may never say that the snake in the garden was Satan, it clearly tells us that Satan was called both the ancient serpent and the great dragon, both reptilian, and his demons are thought to be reptilian as well. Then recall the part about Satan and his demons having the power to enter and possess people, and we start to get into some scary stuff. This brings us to the story of the fallen angels, and we're going to save the full details of that for part three coming up in a bit, so stay tuned. For now, we're going to move out of the Bible and into some of the more modern reptile symbolism in pop culture, and the examples are nearly endless. Let's go into a few of my favorites. First up, how about the snake symbolism in the film Blade Runner? Deckard is press-ganged into hunting down the... Oh yeah, so spoiler alerts. If you haven't seen the original Blade Runner, do it. I'd recommend the director's cut, not the voiceover mess, and not the final cut apologist version, but the first director's cut of Blade Runner. It's astonishing particularly when you realize this was before computer-generated effects, and all of that film is made with real sets and miniatures and in-the-lens photography, as they say, and the soundtrack is haunting, and, well, you get the idea. And the long-awaited sequel, Blade Runner 2049, is a rare example of a sequel that's as good as and adds depth to the original. Both films are masterpieces in their own ways. So, if you've never watched the first one, spoilers ahead, and go check it out. So, Deckard is press-ganged into hunting down the rogue replicants, and we get into some of the coolest film noir, over-the-shoulder detective work when he finds the photos in Leon's apartment. He snoops further and finds a scale at the drain of the shower. Later, he discovers deep within one of the photos the image of a sleeping girl with a snake tattoo on her face. The sleeping girl is a symbol of innocence. She is asleep. She is unaware of the world. This is Eve in the garden, but ever-present is the snake. As silent as tattoo ink, but no less indelible. Then Deckard goes into the field, and he's led to a strange market where shady characters deal in genetically manufactured animals. He takes the scale he found to a sketchy old wise woman with an electron microscope, and deep inside the scale she finds a serial number proving that the scale is from a genetically manufactured snake. 
This is a snake that is not from nature. It's an artificial being, a representation of something else. Like the original reptilian being whom God cast down for its role in deceiving Eve. And it is symbolic of a form of life that can never be fulfilled. Like all replicants, they are artificial intelligence, but they lack a soul, arguably. Deckard is told by the old woman that the snake was made by an Egyptian. Here we have the wisdom traditions of ancient Egypt represented. The pharaoh god king who knows how to create life. But he has sold his creation to the capitalist, Taffy Lewis, who owns a seedy strip club, and once again Deckard is off. But Taffy Lewis is unfazed by Deckard's law enforcement credentials and threats, so Deckard seeks out the owner of the snake, Eve herself, the replicant Zora, who dances in what is called the snake pit. The name Zora may come from the Slavic goddess Zoraya, who is the goddess of the dawn and the innocence of each new day. So once again, we have some Eve in the Garden of Eden innocence symbolism. So when Deckard encounters Zora, he finds her with the snake, the tattoo come to life, the symbol made real. Zora and the snake are partners. She has entered the world of division. She knows her own mortality. She has come back to earth from the heavens, literally, to fight for more life. This is the fallen angel story, and in her capacity as a soldier of fortune, described by Deckard's police captain as being both beauty and the beast, she is Eve after the fall. She must be, in the world of Blade Runner, retired. And she is killed by Deckard even as she falls through a shop window full of mannequins, herself and her snake no more alive in God's eyes than the lifeless shop mannequins she dies among. Another pop culture snake symbol comes in the form of J.K. Rowling's Slytherin House. Slytherin House is home to the villains in the Harry Potter books and the films. They lie, steal, manipulate, and sneak. Their mascot is a snake, and he who must not be named himself grows to resemble a hominid serpent. He can speak to snakes. He is essentially the Satan serpent who tries to defy mortal death of the human condition by splitting his soul and hiding it in physical objects. This is the sin of materialism, and what does Voldemort hate most of all? Free will, love, and real companionship all things he has forsaken in his quest to rule absolutely. I love Harry Potter. Wit beyond measure is man's greatest treasure. Go Ravenclaw. When I was in college, the college radio station featured a blue show on Sunday mornings, hosted by an HR professor who was the HR department head, and one of my friends was an HR major, and that's how I found out about the radio show. So on the rare occasion that I was awake early enough on a Sunday back then, I'd catch the blues show. One segment I remember was all about the symbolism of the snake in old school blues music. There's songs like The Black Snake Moan, Snake Mountain Blues, Stingin' Snake Blues, Crawlin' King Snake, and many more. Snakes in the blues are usually metaphors for evil women, untrustworthy men, or bad luck and negativity in general. 
In fact, when you start to dig into pop culture, like movies and music and books, snakes are pretty much regulars. In Greek mythology, Apollo kills a giant python at Delphi. And ancient First Peoples teachings are filled with legends of serpents and serpent demons. Some snakes and those legends are helpful and some are not. The earliest representations of feathered serpents known to scholars appear among the Olmec peoples, who were the earliest known Mesoamerican culture, lasting from around 1400 to 400 BC. The Olmec predate both the Maya and the Aztec. The Aztec feathered serpent deity is known as Quetzalcoatl, and this is the god of wind and rain and bringer of knowledge, the inventor of books. So here we have another serpent deity associated with giving knowledge, just like the serpent in the Garden of Eden who instigated Adam and Eve to consume the forbidden knowledge of self and good and evil by eating the fruit from the tree of knowledge. So this brings us to the next section of the episode. Part 2. Who rules and from where do they come? Now, (laughs) this takes us into some of the research and conclusions of David Icke and some others. David Icke is an English author. He was a football player, and that's soccer to us Yanks, and uh, he was a British sportscaster and a TV personality, and he's most well-known now as a conspiracy theorist who resides well at the fringe, and some of his ideas are considered pretty far out, even by other conspiracy theorists. But much of that could be since he's also probably one of the most taken-out-of-context researchers as far as his representation in the mainstream. But much of what David Icke says is completely factual, such as the fact that the very term conspiracy theorist was constructed by the CIA and made popular by their assets and agents working in the news and entertainment industry, mainly in the 60s and 70s, but arguably to this day. And this CIA catchphrase, conspiracy theorist, was created originally to discredit the intelligent critics of the JFK assassination and the Warren Commission. Ike also tells us that much of the big decisions made by the world's superpowers are driven by not only unelected, but fully unknown heads of shady organizations so secret that no one knows anything about them outside of the few dozen people in the center. This is impossible to prove, but Ike connects this concept outward into the various arms of the relatively secret organizations we do know a little bit about. And when we start to analyze their beliefs and agendas, a lot of what's going on in the world on a large scale begins to make sense. So if you know where someone is and you have an educated idea about their destination, you can start to recognize the path that they might take, the steps along the way to whatever their goal may be. These organizations that we know exist, but about whose inner workings we know very little, are things like the Council on Foreign Relations, formed in 1921, and the group who essentially guides American global policy and decisions. The Trilateral Commission created in 1973 by David Rockefeller, President Jimmy Carter, and Carter's National Security Advisor Zbigniew Brzezinski. Brzezinski was also an advisor to Lyndon Johnson, who took the helm after JFK was assassinated. 
So Ike points to the Trilateral Commission as being one of the groups that controls society. But Ike's critics are always quick to yell lizard people believer whenever Ike starts to criticize an organization like this. So because he's so heavily criticized, let's not take David Icke's word for it at this point. Let's take a look into what some respected establishment academics have to say about the Trilateral Commission. Noam Chomsky has criticized the commission as undemocratic, pointing to its key publication, The Crisis of Democracy, which describes the strong popular interest in politics during the 70s as, quote, an excess of democracy. Chomsky has cited the publication as one of the most interesting and insightful books showing the modern democratic system to be not really a democracy at all, but controlled by elites who seek to keep the general public disengaged from genuine democratic participation by subtle and mostly nonviolent methods and to redefine democracy itself in operative terms that enshrine their own interests as a tiny, privileged minority. Chomsky adds that the Trilateral Commission's publication was an internal document, so they spoke freely about the need to reduce the increasingly active and defiant public back to its proper state of apathy and obedience, so the public would never actually use democratic means to deprive the ruling class of their power. Critics accuse the commission of promoting a global consensus among the international ruling classes in order to manage international affairs in the interest of the financial and industrial elites under the Trilateral Commission umbrella. Now, nothing makes a mainstream news writer happier than a conspiracy theorist they're trying to discredit who mentions the Trilateral Commission somewhere. Then they can lump that person in with anyone else who ever said that the 5G network is activating the fluoride in the lake water and making the frogs sing show tunes. But some things are conspiracy theories for a reason, and it isn't just independent researchers who have realized the fact that this group, the Trilateral Commission, not only has a great deal of influence and power, but that it is neither elected nor held in any way accountable for their decisions and actions. For example, in his 1980 book, With No Apologies, Senator Barry Goldwater suggested that the Trilateral Commission was, quote, a skillful, coordinated effort to seize control and consolidate the four centers of power, political, monetary, intellectual, and ecclesiastical, in the creation of a worldwide economic power superior to the political governments of the nation-states involved. That's a pretty straightforward assessment, coming from an establishment politician and someone who managed to have a long career in the military and in the Senate, while being held in high esteem by both his peers and the public, regardless of political affiliation. And besides the Trilateral Commission, there are a few other heavy hitters in the arena of global control, like the Bilderberg Group, which, as the first paragraph at Wikipedia tells us, is an annual off-the-record forum established in 1954 to foster dialogue between Europe and North America. 
the group's agenda is defined as bolstering a consensus around free market Western capitalism and its interests around the globe. Participants include political leaders, experts, captains of industry, finance, and academia, and number between 120 and 150, and this is the Bilderberg Group. Attendees are entitled to use information gained at meetings, but not allowed to attribute it to a named speaker. The group states that the purpose of this is to encourage candid debate while at the same time maintaining privacy, but critics from a wide range of viewpoints have called it into question, and it has provoked conspiracy theories from both the left and the right. I use this Wikipedia reference here because it makes a case for the shady dealings of the Bilderberg Group from a resource that is Wikipedia, who will traditionally ridicule most alternative viewpoints. Another gem is the Club of Rome. According to their own description, the Club of Rome is composed of scientists, economists, businessmen, international high civil servants, heads of state, and former heads of state. They meet once a year, and let's read a bit from their own document called The First Global Revolution, published in 1991. In it, they say, quote, In searching for a common enemy against whom we can unite, we came up with the idea that pollution, the threat of global warming, water shortages, famine, and the like would fit the bill. In their totality and their interactions, these phenomena do constitute a common threat which must be confronted by everyone together. In designating these dangers as the enemy, we fall into the trap, which we have already warned readers about, namely, mistaking symptoms for causes. All these dangers are caused by human intervention in natural processes and it is only through changed attitudes and behavior that they can be overcome. The real enemy, then, is humanity itself. Well, that's nice. Okay, so when do we get to the lizard people? Don't worry, we're there. Ready to get weird? Alright, let's go. Through a broader analysis of groups like these, we find that what we are talking about is the systematic consolidation or centralization of global power, which comes with a big dose of population manipulation, and this has been evolving for thousands of years. This goes well beyond the face value machinations of what we commonly call the government. This or that branch headed by this or that prime minister or president, and these are the faces who come and go. The real power is within the permanent leadership of organizations that do not come and go. The structure of the three branches of government and its system of checks and balances in the best case scenario of American politics, and as such, a worthy, valuable, functioning government of, by, and for the people. An example of something that does not come and go. But in addition to that, we have a deep state that is part of that permanent government, and these are the secret societies and organizations that control the banking systems, the largest corporations, worldwide government administrations, the militaries, the intelligence communities, the entertainment industry, and the media. So, information. At a deep enough level, 
both Republican leaders and Democrat leaders answer to the same management structure, and that is the one within the hidden agendas and frameworks of these deeper-than-deep state globalist groups. And that is an absolute fact. David Icke theorizes that because these groups have guarded their membership for centuries, and that they maintain allegiances to their own families, a process of interbreeding has consolidated the ancient reptilian bloodlines among the elites, which were descended from the ancient god kings and or the reptilian aliens who helped father and foster civilization here on Earth. The African Zulu shamans say that the ancient gods took a reptilian form, and they call them the children of the serpent. They also call them the devastators. And the legend is that they have been manipulating human society for thousands of years. Other ancient traditions tell of reptilian hybrid gods. We covered some of those earlier in part one, and we'll get into it deeper in part three, but David Icke hypothesizes that these bloodlines have persisted among the power elite families across the ages, and that they have a sort of hybrid genetics. And Ike believes since our physical bodies are, like anything in the physical universe, mostly empty space and energy, that the dominant physical traits of the reptilian hybrids are those of the human genetics when they are interacting with humans. But at times, some recessive energetic component of the reptilian bloodline shifts forth. And this is how we get the reptilian shape-shifting phenomenon that so many people claim to have witnessed or seen on video among, typically, the power elite. David Icke explains that the shape-shifting phenomenon is less of a physical transformation of the reptilian hybrid, but a shift in perspective of the energy decoding mechanisms of the person witnessing the shift. The scientific reality is that humans and reptiles share at least half of our DNA. It's somewhere between 50% and 70%, depending on the type of reptile being compared and the control amount of human DNA being used, but we aren't fully unrelated on a DNA level. At first, this sounds important, but we also share about 50% of our DNA with trees. We share 60% with bananas. But the fact remains that a high percentage of our DNA is identical to reptilian DNA, and this manifests itself in the human body in various ways and various places. But one of the most significant is within the oldest part of the brain, which is called the R-complex by scientists. This is also known as the reptilian brain. Characteristics we derive from the reptilian brain are largely primitive survival reflexes. Things like fight or flight mechanism, territoriality, the might is right paradigm, aggression, a desire to control, and the fear reflex. So David Icke contends that the more we, as a society, can be put into a sense of fear and survival, the more we are influenced by and controlled by the faculties of our own reptilian brains. This is also the arena within which the reptilian-human hybrids are able to control and therefore influence the behaviors of a society and by extension, the individuals within it. And it's not just the fears of your own finances, health worries, job security, 
but fear for others. And these are cultivated when we consume information about serial killers, school violence, war, traffic fatalities, natural disasters, and the list goes on. For a full report, just turn on the news for 10 seconds. Try this experiment. Turn on a radio when you're driving down the street or a TV news channel when you're sitting at home and see how long it takes before you hear about something negative, something life-threatening, dangerous, or violent. Not just in the content, but in the commercials. So how long does it take? It takes seconds. And if it isn't fear of violence, it's a Mercedes you can't afford, or a celebrity on a yacht that your house would fit inside, or a sports ball player who just signed a multi-million dollar contract to play a game. All of this is done to discourage us, to make us fearful, and to erode our hope. And none of this is theoretical at all. It is obvious and it is incessant. David Icke just says it's part of lowering your vibration so the reptilian entities can take over. They feed on human energy so they have to pull you down into a state they can digest. If you are aware and in harmony with nature and in a majority state of gratitude for your life and the experience of consciousness, a miracle if there ever was one, they can't feed off of your energy. They have to drag you down to a lower vibration to get their reptilian claws into you, so to speak, on a mental level. And this is all done on a vibrational level, so on the level of energy. The reptilian hybrid elite are energy vampires operating on a societal level. Stress and fear and conflict are their energetic states and they project these onto us, or onto a manipulatable population. How? Through the old tried and true Hegelian dialectic, which put simply is problem, reaction, solution. If you wish to change the society or the culture in a way that you know that if you express or attempt it directly, that you will encounter pushback, resistance. In other words, people won't stand for it. So the first step is the creation of a problem. This could be a war, a manufactured illness, an egregious act of violence, a terrorist attack. Essentially, anything that simultaneously induces psychological trauma on the members of the society while acting as a nemesis for the intended solution. The nemesis must then be personified to provide a focus for part two, which is the reaction. So the villain is identified. This could be a country, an individual, or a group. It could be people that believe in conspiracy theories. This is the patsy, and it's the entity upon which the society directs and releases the trauma caused to them by the problem act itself. The villain identity and guilt is then packaged with the version of the solution the ruling class want the public to believe and support. This package is then disseminated to the masses with lockstep obedience by the mainstream media who coordinate the official narrative and express it in easily digestible catchphrases and slogans, in sound bites. 
these are driven into the collective consciousness through repetition. A quote like, This is a threat to our democracy, repeated 2,000 times in four days across every big data, TV, and radio network. If the mainstream media actually employed investigative journalists like they did prior to November 22, 1963, they would, at this point, investigate the facts surrounding the villain's connections to the fabricated solution and the entire operation would falter, but that is not what they do. Investigating the facts surrounding a villain's connections to a fabricated solution is what conspiracy theorists do. And no one hates them more than a mainstream media trying to manufacture consent. So the official narrative blames the villain and instigates an expression of anger from the general population who has neither the time nor the inclination to look into it any further than television or the top five results on a Google search. And this anger then is the reaction component of the operation. The reaction fosters support for part three, the solution. The official version of events is reported to the society by the mainstream media and without question from them. This becomes the official version of history and that is that. The ruling class then responds to the society's anger, fear, and demands that something be done with legislation that becomes a solution to the very problem they themselves have created. This is how they take away freedoms. This is how they invade privacy. This is how they compel us to let them raise the debt ceiling and funnel billions of our tax dollars into insane programs. This is how they get us to approve $25 million to clean the Kennedy Center for the Performing Arts, which is a building that only costs $23 million to fully build from scratch. So through fear of illness, they convince us that it costs more to clean a building than it does to build that building. So Ike contends that this is all a result of the reptilian dominant genetics of bloodlines that stretch back to a time when reptilians bred with humans and created offspring who became the heirs of that ruling class who still rule today. And that because their reptilian brains are dominant, they have a diminished capacity for empathy. This is why they can send millions of people to war and death and conduct false flags that cause violence just to advance their political aims. And they prey upon the percentages of reptilian DNA that all members of society have by generating constant reptilian attributes and responses such as fear, fight or flight, might is right, etc. And that when these lower vibrational states are dominant in the collective consciousness, the reptilian power elite can feed energy vampire style on the woes and negative energies of the masses. And because the masses are reacting through their emotions, they're easier to manipulate and control because emotional thinking abandons logic. So, did reptilians really breed with humans? Part 3 Nephilim, Anunnaki, and the Fallen Angels the eyes, Chico, they never lie. Tony Montana. 
Nephilim is the hybrid reptilian bloodline in the Bible. In Asia, the Nagas are a divine race of half-human, half-reptile beings that reside in the netherworld and occasionally take human or part-human form. Rituals devoted to these supernatural beings have been taking place throughout Southeast Asia for at least 2,000 years. Japan and China have deep histories that include ancient emperors or kings who were said to be descended from dragons. In fact, cultures from every continent have, at some point in their creation myths of ancient histories, stories of serpent gods who descended from the heavens. These reptilian creatures always influence, for good or ill, the fates of humankind. They help. They educate. They meddle. In the Bible, we get the story of the Seraphim from the book of Isaiah, which tells us that Isaiah encountered a group of Seraphim, each with six wings. They used two wings to cover their faces, two to cover their feet, and two with which to fly. In the old Hebrew Bible, the word seraph means serpent. We also have the jinn from Middle Eastern mysticism. The jinn date from pre-Islamic Arabia, then eventually made their way into the traditions and parables of Islam. The Quran condemns the pre-Islamic Arabian practice of worshiping or seeking protection from the jinn. Jinn are usually invisible, but they are said to actually have thin and wispy bodies and they can change appearance at will. They often appear in the form of a humanoid snake, but they can also choose to appear as scorpions, lizards, or straight-up humans. They can engage in intimate affairs with humans and produce offspring. If they are injured by someone, they usually seek revenge or possess the assailant's body, refusing to leave it until forced to do so by exorcism. Jinn are what the Catholics might call demons. For the most part, we are told that the jinn usually don't meddle with human affairs because they would rather just live with their own kind in sort of tribes. Some people put the likenesses of certain jinn on charms and talismans and they call upon them for protection or magical aid. Many people who believe in the jinn wear amulets to protect themselves against their wrath and they believe that wicked jinn can be sent forth on nefarious errands by sorcerers and witches. Legend tells us that a jinn can't harm a person wearing something with the name of God written upon it. Good to know. In North America, there is the Hopi legend of the lizard people who form a large tribe and live in enormous underground cities. This is fascinating because it correlates with a news story from the LA Times in 1934, which tells us the tales of legendary gold miner and mining engineer G. Warren Shuffelt. Shuffelt invented a type of radio sonar machine that could find tunnels underground. With this equipment, he discovered an extensive network of tunnels crisscrossing under the city of Los Angeles and he also created a map of these tunnels. At some point in his exploration, something happened which caused Shuffelt to travel to Arizona and meet with a Hopi medicine man. The Hopi elder told Shuffelt that there were three underground cities along the California coast 
and that these cities were large enough to host thousands of families, families of lizard people who had created the tunnels to escape a dangerous meteor shower that had pummeled the earth thousands of years ago. The Hopi legends say the lizard people employ advanced technologies, like a secret liquid that was used to melt rock. So Shuffelt managed to map the tunnels with his sonar equipment. He did convince the city of LA to pay him to dig down and find the tunnels, but he ran out of that money before he ever reached the tunnel system. But even to this day, some people believe that Shuffelt was right and that a race of lizard people live in deep tunnels under Los Angeles. It makes sense, really. We also have the fairy tale of the frog and the prince, and that's a tale of a reptile shape-shifting into a human member of a royal family. In modern times, we have the story of the Skateboard Swamp Lizard Men, seen by at least three people in South Carolina. This is a seven-foot-tall, scale-covered humanoid reptilian seen by a teenager who fled in his car after changing a tire late at night along the highway. The lizard creature chased him, jumped onto the roof of his car, and finally fell off. A man taking off in his crop duster plane saw a creature of this same description run across a grass runway early one morning. And a woman with her children saw the same type of giant bipedal reptilian walking along the roadside as they drove. All of these sightings were in the same general area of the scape or swamp in South Carolina. And there's also a really cool scientific experiment that built a theory for the existence of a reptilian-human hybrid species. Dale Allen Russell was an American-Canadian geologist and paleontologist. He was the curator of fossil vertebrates at the Canadian Museum of Nature. He was a research professor at the Department of Marine, Earth, and Atmospheric Sciences at North Carolina State University. And he was the senior paleontologist at the North Carolina Museum of Natural Sciences. He was one of the first paleontologists to consider an extraterrestrial cause for the Cretaceous Paleogene extinction event. So that idea that an asteroid or something like it hit the Earth and caused a shift in the climate and that led to the fall of the giant reptiles who had ruled the Earth for longer than humans have been here. Much longer. Russell came up with that theory, or was one of the people who did. Russell also helped lead the China-Canada Dinosaur Project from 1986 to 1991. In 1982, Dale Allen Russell created the Dinosauroid Thought Experiment, which speculated an evolutionary path for Troodon, that was a dinosaur, if it had not gone extinct in the Cretaceous-Paleogene extinction event 66 million years ago, and had instead evolved into an intelligent being. Russell commissioned a model of his dinosauroid by artist Ron Seguin, and the concept became popular. Sort of looks like a slee stack, and that's how old I am, I know what a slee stack is. But anyway, check out pictures of that, you can find them online, it's super cool. My summary. Alright, so... Where do we shake out at the end of all this? I mean, I'm not sure. I've never seen a reptilian humanoid walking around. I guess, I don't know if that's what it would take, but 
I do put a great stock in some of those old, especially Native American stories and those persistent perennial tales, and they always carry a lot of weight with me. It's just interesting. I think they're perennial for a reason. As far as David Icke goes, I think he's been miscategorized and misquoted probably more than anyone. He never said giant lizards are walking around, you know? He just kind of drew these uh, Nephilim and fallen angel stories and paralleled them with the sort of familial interbreeding bloodlines of the power elite and also the ideas of the reptilian brain being based on fear and those things of energy vampires. That's a real thing, of course, and, you know, if you've ever known one. But in the end, I don't know. I think there's definitely something to the idea that a very few people carry a lot of water in the global community. Globalists, people that view humanity as the problem, that want to decrease the population and that want to uh, minimalize democracy so that they can remain in power. You get into some really touchy things around there and that's we see the fruits of that labor everywhere we look, right? And I myself don't watch a lot of TV. I'm always distracted by it in a sports bar because it's the, you know, shiny lights and moving pictures and stuff. It's hypnotic. And it's shocking to me how by and large negative all of that information is. Especially for someone when, when you step back and stop consuming popular media for a while and then you glance at it, you're like, geez, man, who needs it? You know? There was a time when if a van rolled over in Arizona and I lived in Florida, I'd never hear about it. But now I hear about it eight times if I'm one of those people who watch the news. And, you know, we see the people who are the normies. They believe it. They believe it because they saw it on TV. (laughs) It's phenomenal to me. Um, And, you know, some things are true, but certainly not all of it is. But we do have a situation where negative energies are being cultivated. Are they being cultivated by people with a majority of reptilian DNA? I don't know. Is that just a way to say it? It's possible. Certainly not going to blow anything up because of it. It's interesting. I don't have a big dramatic conclusion here. And I keep saying that. I'm sorry. So many of these things are like just interesting stories and cool stuff to go through. And it's fun to read about it and learn about it. If you really want to have a good time, Jump onto your favorite video streaming internet app and just type in reptilian shapeshifter <laughs> or, or reptilian shapeshifting celebrity and then go through some of those and see what you think. Obviously, some of them are fake, but some of them are weird and freaky. Just like the MK Ultra stuff where you see celebrities freezing or whatever or, or glitching out after they hear one word. When you start to really dive deep and go down the rabbit hole of this reptilian shape-shifting jazz, there's some weird stuff out there, you know? And and that's what's fun, isn't it? Isn't that the fun part of the internet, the weird stuff? I mean, I don't know. Maybe I'm a weirdo, but, but anyway, I think it's fun. It's interesting. And this is one of those conspiracy theories that, for me, is just... There's no end to it. You can dive really deep. You can keep going. You can go further and further and further. But you never really come to any conclusion. But that's part of the fun of it, right? As far as those deep sort of super secret trilateral commission and, uh, you know, all those shady groups, check out that 1980 book. It's called With No Apologies by Barry Goldwater and see what he has to say. You know, I gave you a little bit of it, but he didn't have a lot of good things to say about those organizations. We always hear about the Bilderberg group, you know, it's Alex Jones likes to throw those names around and 
he he has a but you know he he's got a lot of information he has a lot of data and he's sort of uh he gives us the good stuff every now and then love him or hate him you know you can't deny that a lot of what he said has come to pass and it's very interesting it's interesting that the club of rome said that uh they had to search for a common enemy which they could unite the people under and that the threat of global warming was at the top of their list that they that they that they systematically manufactured that as uh <laughs> i mean it's in writing right there in 1991 their their document is called the first global revolution you can find it online read it for yourself see what you think they also conclude that the real enemy is humanity itself uh that's a misanthrope if there ever was one and it's kind of scary and is it possible the reptilians of some sort of species bred with humans well that's what we hear the anunnaki are described sometimes as resembling giant reptiles and you know we get a big dose of that in the uh egyptian traditions too and then when we have that crossover with birds scientists are now telling us that most of the dinosaurs actually resembled birds so we have this bird reptile connection and then this Osiris bird humanoid god interbreeding business with the ancient Egyptians. And it's, it's funny because all this stuff kind of always folds back in on itself. It's cool. So I had fun going through all that and I hope you did too. It's interesting. Thank you sincerely for exploring the lore and conspiracy theories of the lizard people with me. And I am really glad to have you as part of the Renegade Files crew. To get more Renegade Files action bonus episodes, and help me keep making these shows. You can kick a few bucks across the internet, less than you'd tip a server for a single meal out, by becoming an RFA agent on Patreon. You can try it for free for a full week, and I'll see you in there. And a huge thank you to you if you're already an RFA agent on Patreon. You make the show work, and you keep it ad-free for all of us. So cheers. Until our next transmission, I'm your host, Lex Gordon. Stay wild, Saturn child. Stay wild, Saturn child.